When I worked in Denver at the church there, there was something, there's a lot of interesting things about working there. But the most interesting thing or the most challenging thing or um, the hardest thing to kind of work around was that we were a conservative church theologically in a more liberal denomination. So I think a lot of us here know what that's like. In some sense, whenever your denomination is a lot more liberal than you are, um, but the challenge that we had at St. Gabriel was that our clergy and our staff was also conservative, but when we would go to events put on by the diocese or the central office of the denomination, we would encounter all kinds of people that had different perspectives because the Episcopal Church in Colorado had all kinds. Because we were pretty much in the middle, I think, but there was people on both sides. So you would go and you would have these conversations with people and sometimes they would assume that you believe the same thing as them. And sometimes it would be in a group and sometimes it would be one-on-one. You'd have these conversations and people would assume that you believe something. And usually the, what, the approach I decided to take was I would just not say anything because it made it more uncomfortable and created more challenges whenever you would say something. But what this comes down to is it's never fun to have someone assume that they know what you believe whenever they haven't even talked to you. Or put it a different way, do they assume that they know what you want to say or what you think? It doesn't have to be about beliefs. It doesn't have to be about anything like that. It could simply be about what you feel. And to have someone assume that they know what you feel can be extremely frustrating. But when it comes to my experience in this church, in this denomination... It was sometimes frustrating or challenging to be in a place where so many people believe different things than you, and also so many people would assume your beliefs and your values without having the conversation with you about it. But now this is a question that we all need to consider while we wait this last week of Advent. Do we do this to God? Do we assume that we know what God wants and desires and values and and what he thinks is important. Now, some of you say, oh, no, Pastor Chris, that would never be the case. Now, that's okay. But let's at least consider this question. Is there a good chance that our culture sometimes assumes that we know what God wants and desires and values? Do our community leaders, do our government leaders, have our past presidents claimed to know what God believes and values. I think that a lot of times we have, unfortunately. Or at least we're in danger of doing this whenever we don't actually look and take the time to see what it is that God teaches us about what he values and believes first. So maybe what it comes down to is we need to realize, and now this is the thing that we really need to to think about, and I think it'll push against us, 
And as we go through these passages today, I think it's really going to push against us if you allow yourself to consider it. But God's values are not always our values. And what I mean by that is simply that as a culture and as a church, we've begun to talk about Christianity in a certain way. And maybe we need to think, maybe that's not exactly what God has taught us, and that's not exactly the mission that Jesus is leading into us as a church. God's values are not always our values. But what's interesting is this isn't the first time in history that people have thought they knew what God wanted, and turns out they didn't. We have two readings today that, that show us that sometimes human values don't line up with God's values. So we're going to look at Micah 2, 5, 2 through, or Micah 5, 2 through 5, and also Luke 39, or 1, 39 through 55 today to see how this unravels. So if you want to take out Micah first, and Alan has already um, done a great job of giving us some background for, Al, or for Micah. And uh, where's Alan at? Alan right here. So as you've gone, I've started to rely on you more for the background information so I don't have to give as much. So whoever does uh, lect- lecturing in a, or liturgist in January better uh, step up to Alan's game. <laughs> That's all right. I can always adjust to however anyone wants to present things. But as Alan had said, Micah was in this circumstance where there was a lot of people who were, um, there's a lot of corruption. And uh, something I'll add that he didn't say is that Micah prophesied, we think, during the time when the northern kingdom hadn't fallen and then when it did fall. So he was in this period when it happened. So if you read chapter 1 of Micah, he actually talks about the northern kingdom and says, if you don't repent, you are going to see destruction come upon you. And then that comes to pass in Micah's lifetime. And then he begins to speak during the time of King Hezekiah. Now that was a pretty good time for Israel, but at the beginning of his rule, it seems like maybe Hezekiah didn't quite get what was going on. But he listened to Micah, and things got better. But Micah, what he does throughout his book is he talks about a call to repentance and judgment. But then he couples that with a promise of restoration. So even though God says that judgment might come, he says, I'm still going to be faithful and restore you to your place that I promised to you. So Micah chapter 5, verse 2 opens this way. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are not small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old. From ancient times. So we read this and we might be wondering, well, what's this Bethlehem Ephrathah? We can't even really say it. There's a lot of weird syllables we don't use in English. Well, it turns out that Bethlehem is the Bethlehem we think of, but Ephrathah is actually a tribal distinction. Because within Bethlehem, there's more than one tribe, but there's one tribe that's from these descendants. And that's the tribe that Micah is trying to designate in this uh, prophecy. So basically what he's doing, he's saying, we all live in Adams County. So if you grew up here, you know that Adams County is defined by the school systems. You either went to Belmont or Adams Central or South Adams. And it didn't matter if you live closer to Belmont or now if you live in Decatur but you go to Adams Central, 
you're defined by the school system. And usually, um, the people you see the most are based on the school system because your kids are in that and, and you do school stuff and you go to school events. But that's what's going on here. There's different tribes, there are different systems of people within the same community. So the way that, that Micah designates the one he wants to designate is by saying it's this one. So this ruler is going to come from Bethlehem, and he's going to come from the tribe of Ephrathah. Now there's someone else who came from Bethlehem, and someone else who came from the tribe of Ephrathah. Does anyone know who it is? Anyone want to guess? Just shout it out. It was a king. He was a king. He was from Bethlehem. He was a surprising king. Starts with a D. <laughs> David, King David, right, okay. So what's going on here is that Micah is identifying that this new ruler will come like David. So that's important. Because David wasn't Saul's son, was he? He was completely unexpected. Saul thought he would pass the kingship on to his son, but David was anointed out of nowhere, and he was an unexpected king. Because who was Saul? Saul was the king that every person looked at and said, that's what a king looks like. And then you see David over here, and no one sees David and thinks he's a king. And that's who God chooses. So this is the perspective that we take when we hear this story from Micah. We see that sometimes God's values are surprising. Because think about it. Do powerful people come from small towns in the middle of nowhere? Sometimes, but maybe only in America. And maybe that's more of a legend than it is a reality. But it can happen here. But in so many places, and especially in the time of the ancient Near East, you did not change social classes. If you were born a shepherd in Bethlehem, you stayed a shepherd in Bethlehem your whole life. You didn't become a king. But God's values are not always our values. Now if we turn to Luke chapter 1, we have a very interesting similar story. So in verse 26 it says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, some town in the middle of nowhere that no one had ever heard of. A town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So Nazareth was this little town in the northern part of Palestine. Some people are generous and say there was around 1,500 to 2,000 people who lived there. But most of what I've read said that there was maybe 200 to 500 people who lived there. And even the people who knew of Nazareth didn't hold it in high esteem. If we read chapter 1 of John, Philip, when he is told that they've discovered the Messiah, and it's a guy from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? So Nazareth is basically equivalent, now not equivalent in the sense of status or belovedness, but like Monroe 
or maybe even Magley. These little places that unless you live here, you don't know about it. And we know that Magley and Monroe and all their little towns in, in Adams County have beloved histories. And we've got some interesting things that have happened around here. But people who live in Fort Wayne probably don't know Monroe and Magley. If they live in Indianapolis, they don't know Monroe or Magley. So just like Bethlehem, Nazareth was a surprising and unexpected place for a king to come from. Now, it wasn't just the hometown of Mary that was interesting. There's another important detail that I think all of us probably noticed, or we might have noticed. We're told that Mary is pledged to be married, and she's engaged to a man named Joseph, and we also are told that she was a virgin. So it's interesting that she is going to have a child. <coughs> now this information is important, not because she's unmarried and a virgin. Now that is important. What's more important is this tells us something about Mary's age. In the time of uh, the first century, if she was pledged to be married and she was described as a virgin, that means she was probably in her early to mid-teens. So we have this teenage girl from this small town in the middle of nowhere who isn't married, who's going to become pregnant. Now that's going to create a lot of problems for her and for her town and for her family, for Joseph. <coughs> Sorry, I'm trying to hold that one in. But remember, God's values are not always our values. No one expected the king to come from a place like this. So the circumstances around Jesus' birth tell us something important about God's values. He doesn't measure values by the same way that we do. Kings weren't born in little towns in Nazareth. They didn't, or they weren't from little towns in Nazareth. They weren't born in little towns of Bethlehem amongst animals. They were born in palaces to royal families with lots of wealth and power. But God's values are not always our values. Now, not only are these values surprising, but as we go forward in Micah, we see Something else about God's values. In verse 3, he continues to saying, Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when, those, when she who, will, who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. So judgment's coming to, the, to people in Micah, but there's this hope of a king who will come and restore Israel's greatness. Now this greatness will come at the hand of the Messiah. And through the leadership of this Messiah over Israel, this greatness will expand to all of the earth, and this greatness will bring peace. Peace. 
through God's anointed king over Israel, the whole world will experience the greatness of God and they will experience God's peace. The Messiah will bring peace to the world. This is a theme of Christmas, right? But let's think again how that greatness and that peace comes. In verse 41 of chapter 1 of Luke. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. Up until this point, Mary has been told by Gabriel that she will have a child, but she didn't know if it actually would happen. But she goes and sees Elizabeth, and Elizabeth confirms that the child will come. So Mary has heard that the promise will be fulfilled. And Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who does believe that God, the Lord, will fulfill his promise to her. God's values are not always our values. But God chose to use Mary to bring the king of Israel who would then deliver peace to the whole world. So the greatness of God would come through the most insignificant of people. Sometimes God's values are surprising. Now this is how Mary responds to hearing what has happened. And Mary said in verse 46 of chapter 1 of Luke, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So Mary responds with this song. Remember, she's in her mid-teens. She's unmarried. That's right, another cough. <coughs> she's in her mid-teens. She's unmarried. She's from a small town. She's a nobody. That puts her in a really bad position, but she trusts God and she says, God is going to make me great among the generations because of this. But she knows it's not because of anything she did, but because of what God did through her. God's values are not always our values. Mary was probably surprised to learn that the Messiah was going to come from her. But if we read the story of Zechariah, Earlier in this chapter, Zechariah heard that his wife would have a child after she had been without a child for so many years, and he responded with doubt. He's this priest in the Holy of Holies who responds with doubt. But then you see Mary, this insignificant girl who's not even married. How can she have a baby? And she responds with faith. So who is it that God is showing us has responded 
and lived the way he has called them to live. The one person who should feel justified in questioning what God has told her he's going to do. But God's values are not always our values. And now Mary continues in verse 50. She says, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has set the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembering to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary recognizes that God is going to be faithful to his people. Remember the promise from Micah. God fulfilled his promise and he was faithful. And because this Messiah was coming, the greatnesses of God was coming to the whole world. And that greatness would bring peace. But this is the question, who did peace come to? God brought peace, but who was it for? God scattered the proud. He brought down the rulers and sent away the rich. And at the same time, he lifted up the humble and he feeds the hungry. God brings peace to the least fortunate of the world by overthrowing the power of the most fortunate. Now this is something we cannot miss because we always get it completely backwards. God brings peace to the world to the least fortunate by overthrowing the power of the most fortunate. God's values are not always our values. Who are the people who usually claim to speak for God? It's the people with power. And those are the people who want to keep their power by claiming that they speak for God. But who was it that God chose to come to the world through? A little girl who was in her mid to early teens from an insignificant town in the corner of the Roman Empire. And then what did that king grow up to do? He didn't raise an army. He went to the most powerful empire in his time, right before them, and he said, I've already overthrown you. And they were scared, so what did they do? They crucify him. They execute him like he's a traitor who's trying to overthrow the government. And what happens? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the power that killed him is overthrown by their very act of power. God's values are not always our values. Now we shouldn't be surprised that our culture doesn't hold God's values. We live in a culture that is in rebellion. But what's most important is that we actually look to God to understand the way the world is supposed to work. So the question that might be wondering, well, how does this fit in Advent? This is the last week. 
How does this fit in Advent? Remember, the Advent starts the story over. So now we start the story of Jesus over. And as God's people, if we choose to be a part of that story, the story that defines us, we need to know what's most important in that story. We need to know the kind of themes that are prominent, the kind of values that are communicated. So instead of the story that our culture tries to sell us, any one of the many, as we retell the story of Jesus throughout this year and try to live this story, we are shaped by this story. God's values are not always our values. But the more that we live the story, the more God's values become our values. So that's my call for us as we start the story over, as we anticipate Jesus' arrival on Christmas and then wait for his return.